0: It's brand and execution. And when you talk about execution, it really comes down to people. You know, people don't realize that, you know, a restaurant company is so people driven. The people are so much of the product and experience. The food, while it's challenging sourcing locally the way we do, what makes what we do so challenging is we have so many ingredients that are made from scratch in every store, every single day by human beings. And Building a system and then a culture and training in order to do that in a consistent way is what makes what we do very hard. Hi, I'm Jubin, operating partner at Kleiner
1: Perkins, and I'm excited that you're tuning into Grit, a podcast that sits down with amazing leaders every week to discuss what it takes to create, build, and scale world-class organizations. The goal of this is not for it to be a highlight reel of how successful my guests are, rather a candid exploration of how hard it is, both personally and professionally, to build history-making companies. Speaking of incredible companies, we don't do sponsorships on the show. So if you're inspired by the stories of my guests, my call to action is to reach out and let's find a great home for you in the Kleiner portfolio. I appreciate you doing this.
0: Brand new office. How much bigger is this office than the last office? So this office is actually a little bit smaller than the last office. Okay. So we were right next door for the past year or so. And decided to move into a slightly smaller space just to bring people closer together. We're still trying to get everybody back to work like the rest of the world. Yeah, so. yeah,
1: yeah. Same with us. Do you remember how this started? Do you remember the notes that I sent you? Do you remember what it said? I don't. Tell me. I said, John, we've never met, but I may be in the running for number one lunchtime sweet green customer across most cities in the US. And then I went into like this is the pot. I think you should join. <laughs> What's your order? Spinach and kale, lentils, chickpeas, tomatoes, avocados, goat cheese, tofu, light hot sauce, red pepper flakes. That's it. Fire order. Pretty good, right? I like
0: it. Yeah, Are you vegetarian?
1: No, but I have a salad for lunch no matter what every day. And I've done that for a very long time. I never eat breakfast. I have a salad for lunch, and it's kind of just like habitual at this point. It's a safe way for me to know I'm eating healthy. I enjoy it. That's just kind of been my thing. And so I I always do that, no matter what. I I do the same exact thing. Like when my team is like, what do you want for lunch? The usual, that's the order. And it just comes to the office. And you order delivery, pickup? It depends where I am. Because I travel so much, sweet green, and I'm not just gassing you up on this. And the team was actually worried because I'm such like a I've had some pretty cool guests on here, but I'm such a sweet green fanboy. Like, I just love what you guys are doing so much that they're like, try not to get too excited.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, dang it. We appreciate that.
1: I do delivery through DoorDash usually. And then- We got to get you on our app. So I'm on the app. I don't use it that much. I got to be honest. And then I go to the store whenever I'm, I always stay at the same hotel in the Bowery. So I go to the one in Bowery. If I'm in the office, there's ones near the office in downtown San Francisco- that's how I do it. We're going to
0: get you on the app. Yeah. I'm going to show you some features there that we don't have on DoorDash. Plus, it's a lot less expensive ordering on our app directly. And it's better for you. And it's better for us.
1: I lived in Chicago in River North.
0: Our first store in Chicago. Oh, really? Yeah.
1: That place gets... I mean, it's like you're walking into a club in LA. <laughs> yeah. There's going to be a bouncer there soon.
0: I've never seen anything like it. Yeah. That's a great neighborhood for us. So good, right? And have you noticed the new... St- Tofu that we launched? No. Have you, t- have you tasted the difference? I actually haven't, if I'm being honest. Okay. I could lie to you it's and been, say I have. It's been a few, it's probably been six months now. It's unbelievable the, new, the difference. So, just so much better quality tofu, but also the way we've cooked it is just gives it a lot more flavor. My rationale for the tofu thing is that I have a salad for lunch every
1: day. And I always used to put the blackened chicken in my salad at Sweet Green. And then I realized I'm having every meal, I'm having meat. Maybe I could say that there is like environmental reasons for it. I just don't think I should be having meat for every meal. Right. So
0: then I put the tofu in and I'm like, God, this is good. Yeah. The tofu is amazing. This is really good. And with the lentils, the chickpeas, you're having, you're having a lot of protein. I feel like I get my protein, yeah. some goat cheese, some avocado. Yeah, for sure.
1: I'll tell you, it breaks my heart when the store doesn't have avocado. And like during COVID for some reason, it got harder to get avocado
0: and it was heartbreaking. I know. Avocados are luckily back. The avocado supplies. <laughs> was <laughs> is, that thing? Is, Yeah. Avocado supplies, very tricky especially as avocado usage in the U.S. has grown so much with people loving guacamole and avocado toast and all those things. It's seasonal. Almost every year you have a crunch right around the fall where avocados become in short season. We buy organic avocados most of the year yeah. in California, and then most of the avocado crop then moves to Mexico in part of the season. Yeah. So things get tricky for a few months, but this year should be good. Well, us Californians, we're addicted to we're, our avocados. We're just used to it. In Chicago, no one even orders the avocados. I know. It must be regional, right? Fun fact that when we were first starting Sweet Green, we considered calling it Avo just because we loved avocado so much and we wanted to put avocado on every single item. But <laughs> I'm glad we didn't, given the price volatility, it would have been dangerous. And your
1: first signature dish was the guacamole
0: green salad, right? That's right, yeah. And that's still there. Still there. It's the only thing still on the original menu. But it gave us a really an idea of what sweet green we wanted this sweet green wink to be, which is take these classics that people love and make them healthy. Dude, Sweet Greens a great name. How would you come up with that? You know, honestly, it was when we were, we started the idea. It was start, we wanted to solve a problem in our own lives and we went thinking about names and originally we were going to call it Greens. There was this cafe in Australia that I loved called Greens Cafe. And we wanted to name it Greens and we went and did the trade (laughs) and checked for the trademark and realized it wasn't available. So a lot of late night brainstorming. We had so many stupid names that we considered. And at first it was going to be Sweet Greens. And we were sitting there and, and we're like, we should just drop the S and it'll look much nicer. Sound, you know, a little bit more alliteration. And originally Sweet Green, when we launched, it was salads and frozen yogurt. We just celebrated our 15 year anniversary, so congratulations! Think, think 15 years ago, you know, with the whole tart yogurt freight, uh, that you know, Froyo, craze, yeah. So we had the Froyo. We launched with Froyo, and it was a huge part of our business. So part of the idea was sweet and green. So you had, you know, kind of both.
1: I remember seeing pictures when I was doing some of my homework of you or your team in a truck
0: driving around delivering yogurt, frozen yogurt. Yeah, yeah, Is that true? Yeah. <laughs> so when we first opened, we opened our first restaurant and then soon after we opened our first food truck. And it was again, before the food truck craze had become all that it's become today. And it was called Sweet Flow Mobile. So Sweet Flow was the name of the yogurt. And so we had this yogurt truck that we would drive around town. So we don't no longer serve yogurt, but the remnants of Sweet Flow, the best artifact is actually our very first employee. His name is Tim Noonan. He joined us to lead that, to drive, be that yogurt truck driver. He graduated Georgetown, joined Sweetgreen, saw something and where things were going and led the yogurt truck and led SweetFlow Mobile. He's still here today, about 14 years later. Good ride for him. Uh, amazing. He's doing amazing. He leads development, real estate development and R&D for us, helping build our stores, our new prototypes, things like our drive throughs and even leading our automation efforts. When did you decide to decommission the yogurt?
1: Was that a hard decision? It, it was, was. It was a really hard
0: decision. Yeah. It was because, you know, when it started, it was a huge part of our business. It was, you know. Like a revenue-wise. Revenue-wise. It was, you know, in the first restaurant, 30% of our business in sales. So in was, Georgetown. In Georgetown. Almost 50% of transactions. Was but yogurt. Was yogurt. We were the first yogurt, tart yogurt place in D.C. What? So we would, and were I mean, the
1: margins must have been better on that, Margins too.
0: were great. It was awesome until... There was no barrier to entry for the most part. And then if you remember the proliferation of all of these yogurt places and they were like the ones where you'd come, you know, kind of self-serve and yep. just weigh your yogurt and ours, we, we didn't serve obviously candy and all of like the crap that people put on the, on yeah. the yogurt. Ours was, you know, organic made with like better yogurt and all kind of like healthy toppings and it continued to do well, but the decision really came. It was almost like five years later as we were starting to expand into other cities we realized that the biggest challenge we were having was the throughput of our front line. We had more demand than we could service, and we saw an opportunity to introduce online ordering and mobile ordering to really increase that throughput and create a new channel for ordering. In order to do that, we had to find space in the store somewhere to service that, and that you know ultimately it became a prioritization decision of have a second line to make salads, or keep the yogurt and so it was a really hard decision but right. ultimately if you think about that secondary line today is over 50 percent of the business at sweetgreen so while it was very hard at the time it's been completely transformational and i think it was a lot of le- lesson there sometimes letting go of something to create room for something that could be much bigger and in the define future. second line so in all of our restaurants we have our front line which you probably walk when you in come you into see, the you store and you see that front line where the team members are making your food very early on, we realized if we wanted to have a digitally enabled restaurant, we could not interrupt that front line with digital orders. So if you were standing in line, you couldn't have someone ordering on their phone right. and that team member stopped making your salad to make the other salad. So what we started doing is mirroring lines. And putting a secondary make was line. was that
1: unorthodox at the time.
0: Yeah, it was. People thought that was crazy of like putting a secondary make line. Usually, you wanted to leverage your existing line, right? And online ordering was so nascent. And this get as two- much
1: throughput as you could on the on the single line. Correct. And yeah. this was
0: like 2010 when we were doing this. People, you know, kind of thought it was crazy that people would order food on your phone. Something that's so like obvious today. The early advent of that was was a huge. I'd say one of the best decisions we made early on because we built all of our stores in this digitally enabled way. Which now you see the competition going and renovating stores, having to put in these secondary make lines and these pickup stations, and we kind of knew that the key to unlocking the digital customer wasn't just the digital experience, but the store experience to enable that digital experience. Yeah, and if you look at our restaurants today, we have stores today where they have one front line and. Four four or five, six back lines. Because you do so much through the app and other different types of so orders. So a store like River North, you know, you have the store that you see. Yeah. And in the back of that store, we have an additional four lines. Are you kidding? That are pumping out orders for delivery, for pickup, for our outpost business. So a lot of the business that's occurring, you don't even see it. It's happening people ordering and kind of people making those orders behind the scenes.
1: For those that have not heard of Sweet Green has raised a total of almost 500 million across 15 rounds. Is that, that didn't even make sense to me. Right? My team was like, they raised a series I or something. And I'm <laughs> like, ah, something's funky. And then over $340 million of revenue, forecasting around 500 towards the end of the year, 5,000-ish employees. Is that right? It's a lot of yeah, employees. almost 6,000 employees. It's incredible. Market cap is 2 billion today, was more than that a year ago. You sit on the board of MeUndies, which is a, also a very cool company. I want to rewind a little bit what was the first job you ever had? What was the first job where someone paid you to do something?
0: My first job, man. I've been working since I was a kid. For me and my family, it was always very important, uh, just from a values perspective, to go to work. So I'd say my first job was, you know, I wanted just going to work with my dad, working in his warehouse.
1: Yeah. I'm also Persian. Yeah, my parents also are
0: first-generation immigrants from
1: Iran. Came from the revolution. Yeah, same. The values of work are instilled in me to the point that it's almost unhealthy. (laughs) So you know,
0: from from the time you're three or four years old, you know, what are you doing? I remember being a kid and wanting to put on a suit and go to work with my dad. Yeah, and that was that's what you did. It was just every summer there was nothing. You weren't staying at home. You were going to work, whether it was working for the family or going and doing something else. I had a summer job every year since as long as I could remember. My mom, I
1: remember in middle school, I would finish my homework and she'd say, there's more work to do. Go do more work. And I'm like, I have no more work. She goes, go do your math homework. And I was like, I'm not even in math class right now. I'm not even (laughs) taking math. And so anyway, what it would just devolve into is me going and sitting on my bed with my Game Boy and a textbook on my lap, like behind (laughs) the Game Boy. It's just how they are. And I think I always attribute this. I talk to my mom about this because work was their way to build a life in this country. Mm -hmm. And so like work and education and like doing the hard thing was their only way. And so the only thing that they know how to instill, the only value they can instill in us is the ways that they made it. Absolutely. And so I think in most ways, I'm really grateful. In yeah. some ways, it's a and little I still,
0: bit. And I still believe in that. I know the world is changing, but I still believe in the fulfillment of hard work. I think there's something really amazing about committing to something you're passionate about and, and integrating your life with something, you know, work that's not just a job, but a purpose. And I think it's really energizing. So I'm, I'm really glad I kind of was instilled with those values. And we try to create a culture here that really brings passion and purpose together. Can I ask you an
1: honest question? Because it's something that's been bothering me a lot. Like, do you feel like we've lost the script a little bit on like just working? Just actually coming to the office and like doing your damn job and like enjoying it and working. I don't know what happened probably COVID in the last couple of years. I just feel like we've lost this ethos of doing hard work and we've over-rotated on this extreme balance, you know, where I'll have entry-level people call me coming out of school saying, hey, Jubin, I would kill to have this job, da-da-da-da-da, start asking them questions. And next thing I know, they have to be remote. And I'm like, wait a second. Yeah, it would be really nice to live in Austin or New York City, but the job is in LA or San Francisco. And like when I was graduating, I would have moved to like anywhere. I would have moved to Iran, you know, <laughs> if this was, if the job was what I wanted.
0: I think the word you use is right, over-rotating. In previous generations, we may have prioritized work over family and over well-being in certain ways. And I've always believed in finding a balance. The other thing I think my parents instilled a lot was this idea of balance and Success is not just success in one place. Anyone can be successful in one thing. But I've always believed that true success is if you can balance success in work, in your relationships, in your mental health, in your spirituality, in your family, you know, it's all of those things together. And of course, your physical health as well. And so I think that we've over-rotated a little bit, to use your word. And I do think the pendulum will hopefully swing back because I do think what's made America is capitalism. And I think the market forces of capitalism are very powerful. And while many people may not want to work that way, there's still people that do. There's still people that want to come to this country and work hard and people that see the opportunity about going to work, going in person, putting in the hard work and rising up through that. So I do get frustrated sometimes when I feel what the things that you said, but, uh, I do believe there's still people out there that have that hunger and that there's maybe harder to find.
1: Yeah, I agree. And those that are out there, like they're going to rise to the top a lot faster these days because there's just less people that give a shit.
0: That's it. It's easy to make yourself known in a world where nobody goes to the office. It's just like, just show up you just show up and do the work. I mean, for me, I'm, you know, I'm here every day and I'm like, if I was a 22 year old, I would be here. I would be here and I would come have lunch with me. A hundred percent. And for me, it's kind of surprising that people would rather sit at home. But at the same time, I understand the pull of family and the flexibility needed. And so I think what the challenge for us is finding that balance. I don't think it's all the way just work from home because I don't think that there's real fulfillment in that. I think we're social beings and great work is done in a human capacity. Yeah. You know, I, think, I thought that this one stat that I love to share with my team is, is Sam Altman put a Twitter poll up recently and he said, if you found out that your competitor, your d- direct competitor was starting and it was a group of smart people and they were either fully remote, hybrid or fully in person, which option would make you most scared? And of course, the overwhelming majority, I think it was 70% of people said if they were fully in person. And so it's very clear that we believe that fully in-person is better for the company. Is it necessarily better for the person? Maybe not, given commutes and all that. Society hasn't figured it out, is all I have to say. We've kind of swung from fully remote works and is more productive. And you know maybe the FaceTime of 12-hour days, five days a week wasn't right. But I think we're, we still need to find that balance for companies that really, really want to win especially companies that operate in, I think some companies are different, but companies that operate in the real world with physical goods that are building things and like delivering things, I think it is especially important for that in-person collaboration. I totally
1: agree. It's a little bit of a COVID hangover. So Steve Case was your first institutional investor revolution, right? They're in DC. And I went there and he and I sat down, I don't know, probably six, seven weeks ago to do an episode. And I commented on the Sweetgreen outpost that was in his office. And he said, yeah, I know how many people are in the office just based on how many salads are on the rack. And he had a similar experience. And obviously we see, you know, we have hundreds of companies in our portfolio, so we have a pretty good perspective. And it's a very similar theme that we haven't figured out yet, which is it is better for the company and leadership wants people to come in person. However, the employees are not coming in. And you can use the outpost example as like a really clear, shiny beacon, no pun intended, of just like people
0: not coming. How do you reconcile that? I don't think anyone's figured that out yet. I honestly don't think anyone has figured it out. I think this next year, things will really start to rebalance. We do believe in the fall You know, I think people really took the summer off in a lot of ways. I think summers will forever be changed. Fridays will forever be changed. But I do think this fall, especially as the economy tightens a little bit, people are really going to get back to work in a different way. But, you know, I wish I had the answer. We're trying to figure it out here. So much of our business at Sweetgreen historically was very urban driven. You know, historically, a lot of our business was based off people going to work. Today, we've diversified our business significantly. Today, majority is now in the suburbs, and our push is much more into the suburbs. So we're less reliant on that, Yeah. but we're hopeful that at least some parts of, of that return to work, returns not just selfishly for our business, which would be great, but I do think, you know, everything I look at and I read from a loneliness and depression perspective I don't know if people are happy or isolated at home the way they're operating today. So again, I think it's an over-rotation and we just got to find that, that new balance that makes sense and is sustainable for employees, for their balanced life, for their health, for their families and all the things they need, but also makes sense in this capitalist world, especially for companies that have big ambitions and want to do great things. It takes that extra effort and not all companies are going to do it, but the companies that really want to go and win always have to go above and beyond in some capacity.
1: I totally agree. And just to put one kind of bow on this thing, it is very odd to me when we have such a unique distinction between what's good for the company and what is perceived good for the employee. And at some point, those have to come together. There has to be some meeting of the minds there. Hasn't happened yet. I expect it will. Anyway, can I revisit a point that you made about like, overbalancing or imbalancing one or the other, both personal and professional. As you think back to like the earlier days of Sweetgreen,
0: how imbalanced were you? And like, would you change that? Can you change that? I had a professor in college. His name was Will Finnerty. He was an entrepreneurship professor. And he taught us about this idea called the house of equilibrium, which kind of had all of these buckets that I mentioned in a house. It was career and money. It was health. It was relationships. It was faith and forgot what the fifth bucket was, but you know, this house of equilibrium. And he was very clear to say that the goal is to find an equilibrium in these homes, but not all at once. And occasionally you're going to have to have one room in that house be significantly bigger to get there. So I'm very grateful for the early years of Sweet Green. We started in DC right after graduating. All our friends left DC. They moved to New York and LA and all over. And we were living, the three of us living together, Hustling every day, working a five hundred square foot salad shop, literally just like prepping food and, and working that restaurant. This, yeah, that, that that's, that's us. That's it's, the three of us. You know, the three that. three youngins, literally, you know, just hustling at this restaurant. And Your I hair getting better. <laughs> it's <laughs> it's getting, thank you. <laughs> it's getting better. A good picture. But I would never take back that grind time. Yeah, I think you grow so much in that time, and there is certain moments where I do believe sacrifice is important to find comfort, you know, later in your life. And so I don't think, you know, it's sustainable to do that for 20, 30, 40 years. But I think at certain moments in your life, that extra grind is absolutely necessary. And I don't think sweet green would have been what sweet green is if we didn't fully commit, you know, for a few of those years, we were working seven days a week, nonstop. It was just our, our whole entire life. We didn't have relationships, probably weren't as healthy physically, all of those things. It was just whatever we had to do to survive. As the story goes, and tell me if I'm rewriting history here, but my understanding
1: is that you and your co-founders, there's two others, started it, and then you were going to go to Bain, went to Bain, because they were like, go like, learn some shit, go figure something out, and then like come back and let's see if there's a there there. And then you came, like the force, the gravity of Sweetgreen was just too strong in your head for you to ignore it, is kind of the way that I think about yeah. it. Was there a trigger where you're like, I'm leaving like this cushy Bain job and I'm going to go start this salad and maybe yogurt company.
0: Yeah. So that's correct. The story's is correct. Okay. Um, but what had happened is we had opened sweet green. So uh-huh. we had come up with the idea for sweet green. We were seniors in college at the same time, or even before we had come up with the idea. If, if you remember how college recruiting was at there, at least at the time was you would apply for jobs in like September of the year before. So I applied for this job, thought it was a dream job, got the job at Bain then we go on. I almost forget about it, and we go start green. We open that summer. I had committed to being at Bain by like November of that year. So we open the store. We have the store open for a few months, and then I'm like, have to go report for duty. And nudity. it's working. The and store's it's working. working. It's working. We're happy, but it's one tiny store. We hadn't, you know, had really had plans for the expansion yet. So I'm like, you know what? I'll go to Bain. I'll learn a lot. It'll help support me. I'll get a lot of, you know, connections and network to help us. And I'll still, you know, moonlight it and work at Sweetgreen. It was an interesting time because I'd spend my days at Bain and half my time hiding on phone calls in the bathroom working at Sweetgreen. So sorry, Bain. But I learned a lot from that experience. And it, the, the catalyst was a few things. One, I was not happy as a consultant. I think very early on, I realized that the entrepreneur, I always knew I wanted to be an entrepreneur. I thought that I needed to learn more and work other places before I could do it. But this idea of being a consultant was very, very hard for me. And I think Bain's an incredible organization. I remember working on projects where we weren't solving the core product issue, where it was really about the process more than how to win. And for me as an entrepreneur, it was like, you know, you're looking at this company and you're like, but the product's broken. We're trying to reduce the churn, but like, let's go fix the product. And that wasn't what we were hired to do. And so that was really challenging for me doing that, especially after having already started a company where I got to like really drive something. The second was it had done well and we decided we wanted to expand. So we had just decided that we were going to go open restaurant two and three. And so, you know, I think for me, it was a little bit of a family struggle is, you know, coming from the same community, a lot of pressure to go home back to L.A., and this was in D.C. And so the real pressure was I was had to commit, you know, at least 10 years of my life living in D.C. in order to make this happen. And so that was the sacrifice for all three of us. But ultimately saw the opportunity and just made the leap i just remember moving back it was right around barack obama's inauguration i remember because we were catering the inauguration remember it being like freezing cold i was you know i didn't have a place i was sleeping on one of my co-founders couches for the first three months but i have such fond memories of that time now just like building those next two restaurants and sitting and writing the plans for the future and just recently celebrating our 15-year anniversary we were going through old letters you know, investor updates and investor letters and other things that we had written down. And it's just amazing to kind of look back at some of those artifacts where how much things are really the same in terms of the vision of what we wanted to do. And, you know, my advice, and I know, you know, this podcast is a lot about grit, honestly, people ask like, what's made three Green successful? It's, I don't think we're smarter than anyone else. I think we just did not give up. I think a lot of people have had the same idea. I think we just stuck to it and just kept going.
1: What did your Persian parents say when you were going to leave your Bain job <laughs> and go start a salad and yogurt shop?
0: I give both my parents a lot of credit because, as you know, in our culture, part of why I took the Bain job was for them. You know, a lot of it was you go get educated. I went to this, got a Georgetown degree to go get this good job. And my dad's eyes like to eventually go into real estate. <laughs> right, you know? right, right. Like that was, that was the idea. And so I give my dad and, you know, I'm a, I'm a dad now with a two-year-old, uh, two-year-old son. Congrats, man. Thank you. And I, and I just give him so much credit for probably looking at it as the stupidest thing in the world, but knowing that it was probably going to fail, but the failure and the experience was going to be so valuable and instead of micromanaging and saying no you got to come back and doing this realize that like worst case scenario you learn something and you come out best case things work out i don't think any of us thought that it would kind of turn into a lifetime of work
1: totally so you do it but you do restaurant one and it's good like totally rocking things are great then you quit your job in order to open restaurants two and three at that point had
0: you raised money so we raised money and this is why you see the 15 rounds, right? You know, restaurants are very capital intensive, mm-hmm. you know, building restaurants are very, very, very expensive. And when we first started, we didn't really know how to raise money. And also no one, it wasn't this era of, or maybe this era is over of being able to raise money for free, anything. free money, like, free, free yeah. money. It was in the middle of the recession. It was 2007 to 2000, 2008. Yeah. And the way we raised money was the way you typically raise money for a restaurant, which is not, you know, selling shares in a company. It was, Hey. You scrounge around for a few shekels from friends and family. Yeah, like, it was $300,000 from 50 people. So like, do the math of yeah. how many, how Some many five, checks. Yeah, it was like five, 10 grand per person. It was more like a distribution deal. It was give me 300 grand and you guys are going to get quarterly distributions based off of the profit of this restaurant until you're paid back plus more. And then we're going to share the profits over time. And that was what we did three times over. And then it was finally after three restaurants, we realized that we can't raise money for every single restaurant. We did a roll up of the restaurants into like a larger holding company. Right. And then we would raise money one year at a time. We'd raise money for the next three restaurants and then the next five restaurants. I may have done things differently in terms of how many times we raise capital because it's a bit of a distraction. Having to go through that really forces you to clarify your thinking and your strategy and be super sharp. About what you're doing. 100%. So,
1: it's like doing a board meeting, basically. Totally.
0: It's like the board meeting is kind of a waste of time, but the preparation for exactly. the board That's meeting exactly right. is
1: valuable. And that was
0: the value of those
1: early fundraisers. you raises. not raise, was that just the cadence that you guys just settled into was raising every year? Or were you trying to raise bigger funds, but people wanted to continue to see things roll out a few at a time? Or is that how it just kind of went? So
0: at the time, venture capital did not invest in restaurants. Do we now? They do now. Yeah, there is much more growth in private equity investing in restaurants. restaurants. And, you know, I remember when Steve Case invested, all the headlines are, what is a tech investor doing investing in a salad company? And, you know, I think it was just something that you didn't see happen. Usually, you know, venture capital went to tech. It didn't go into brands or direct-to-consume brands. None of that existed 15 years ago. So, and I think for us, we were also a little bit scared of it, to be honest. And we continue to be very protective And so, you know, going back then, we were very... You got to report to the man. It was not just the reporting. It was fear of losing what made us special in terms of the culture, the brand, the quality of the food. And we're just scared. You infuse a bunch of capital, they force you you to... lose control. You lose control. They force you to grow really fast. Like all of these, like all of the horror stories you hear about these companies that had something special and kind of lost their way. And for us, you know, Sweetgreen is a fast growth company, but it's also... It's different than a normal technology. It's not a software company. It is a brick and mortar brand that that we believe can compound growth over a very long period of time. So Mm -hmm. for us, it's one of one of the core things we do is protect the brand and protect. It's not just growth at all costs. The protecting of our customer experience, that team member experience, and the overall brand is so important to us. In that vein
1: of protecting the brand, I was thinking
0: about this before we sat down. Would you ever franchise? So, you know, we were asked this a lot in the early days, especially when we had trouble raising capital. Right. You know, when you have trouble raising capital, we we always had offers for franchising. Well,
1: and correct me if I'm wrong, but in the early days, you guys were the ones managing the restaurants, Correct. like the first five ten restaurants, was you and the co founders going in and doing it. So if I'm someone giving you money, I'm like, all right, fellas, like, how's this going to scale? You yeah. know, and you're still doing probably yogurt
0: too at that point. <laughs> no, we were doing the whole thing, and <laughs> you know, so we got a lot of offers for franchising. As right. you'd expect, we still get a lot of offers. I'm sure, one of our core values early on was thinking sustainably, and the belief was. One, we don't think that the, with the experience we want to have, we can maintain that with franchising. You really do lose control. Yeah. Two, we knew that great companies have to change and they're going to have to change the experience rapidly. So there, there would be getting rid of yogurt, introducing online ordering. Today, we believe automation is going to be a huge part of the future for us. So There's all these things. And when you franchise, you don't own that restaurant. You're licensing your brand. And if you want to say, I want to get rid of yogurt, I want to introduce online ordering, You can't just do it. You don't have full control over that. And then the last piece is, and this is, I think we were just very fortunate. We had fantastic unit economics. And so the unit economics that we kind of maintained throughout our history is essentially trying to pay back our restaurants in about two years. You know, you invest million two, we try to pay back in approximately two years. It's kind of like how we think about it in, in, in a broad sense. When you franchise, you can grow faster in the short term, but ultimately you're you're taking about 5% off the top line versus what we can capture today. You know, last quarter was 18 and a half percent. We think over time, 20 plus percent margins. So we thought that was really important. At the same time, we understood that what we're trying to do, and I remind our team this all the time, has only been done a few times. If you think about the past 30 or 40 years, how many restaurant brands have hit exit velocity?
1: Well, not that many.
0: It's really not a lot. No. Starbucks that are that are company owned. Starbucks, Chipotle. I mean, you could even argue Chipotle had a little bit of help. Had McDonald's. Right. Right. So like who's really hit exit velocity? I mean, there's there's companies maybe on Shake Shack's a great company without maybe franchising. On its, you're maybe on street, but without yeah, franchising, yeah. who has actually achieved like yeah. exit velocity massive scale? And it's really only been done less than a handful of times. And so I think we were very fortunate in the timing in which we started, in the ability to raise capital in the time that we did, you know, we got very lucky in that free money world and being able to capture a lot of that to build the brand in the footprint. And now we just have to be really disciplined stewards of that capital yep. to make sure we achieve this mission.
1: So you leave Bain, raise some money, come back stores two and three. Fellows are riding pretty hot right now. They're playing a hot hand. They had a good first store.
0: How do the next ones go? How do two and three go? So number two and three open almost at the same time. So, in DC. In DC. So we opened number two in DuPont Circle, number three in Bethesda. And at the same time, pretty much exactly at the same time, launched that Sweet Flow mobile truck. So it was a very busy, it was like April and May of 2009. It was a very, very busy time. It was also in the middle of a very hard time in the economy. So raising money for those stores was very, very challenging. We opened the restaurants. The first one was opened is DuPont and it's a complete mess. We open up, we spend more than twice what we spent on the first restaurant, expected it to be our big flagship, and it just totally was terrible. We were doing like less than $1,000 a day. Are you serious? Oh, yeah. We were, we were very, very scared for what happened there. Bethesda, on the other hand, opened up and it was just amazing from day one. Yeah. But it was the DuPont experience. And again, like so many of these crises that you have really... Help define the company over time, and we always had this idea. Is like you know that you hear a lot in these COVID eras, like how can a crisis be? You know, turn a crisis into an opportunity. And so, from the very early stages, we're like, all right, we have a problem here, but like, how do we hustle to fix this? And can we find an opportunity in this? And you know, the story around Dupont was that was really the start of what became Sweet Life Festival, because in our ploy to try to get people to work to come see Sweet Green, we opened in Dupont Circle on the other side of the street it was very busy. You could see it, but there's a divider on the street and people just would not cross the street. We just had to create attention. We really didn't know from a marketing perspective. We really didn't know what to do. You know, you're we 23 year old kids. So the bright idea was go to Guitar Center, buy a big speaker, buy a folding table, park in front of the, <laughs> the store in the days of the farmer market and just start DJing. And so just play music, invite friends, create a little bit of vibe. The next you know, a few weeks after doing that, it turned into a bit of a block party a few weeks after doing that, we expanded the block party and we kept building on this block party and we realized that And was then the something. wake of the block party was just going into the restaurant. They would come hang out in front or in back and right. then they would come try it. Right, and the, right. thing, the thing about sweet green is it's hard to get people to try it or it used to be very hard to get people to try it. But once you tried it, you realized there was something there. And I mean, you said this earlier, the magic of it is it's very habitual. Once we acquire a customer, it's not a customer that comes once a year. It's a customer that comes a few times a week. And so you just had to capture that customer and it created that flywheel of them, you know, that virality and them telling their friends mm-hmm. and coming off. And so, you know, we started this block party, kept growing. And finally, we decided, wow, we should make this into a festival. So by 2010, we launched a festival, you know, which was about a thousand people. We had a band called Hot Chip, a bunch of local bands play. And it was an amazing, like amazing celebration. We called it the Sweet Life Festival. And it was a way to showcase the culture of what we were trying to do. Fast forward to the year later, and it was 25,000 people headlined by The Strokes at Meriwether Post Pavilion. And it like really kind of put our brand on the map because we had seven restaurants in DC and a 25,000 person music festival, all with this idea of, can you have a music festival that is healthy? And the idea, you know, music festivals, you know, then and kind of still now you'd go and it was like the most unhealthy day of the year. You're eating soda and chicken fingers and all this crap. And our whole thing is, can we take this festival and can we make it so that you're watching Kendrick Lamar while eating a bowl of quinoa? It's like these things that you don't think should go together, but can we bring them together? And can that create a culture and a movement around this idea of healthy living in a fun way?
1: I don't think most people know that Sweetgreen used to throw music festivals. Did you have like an identity crisis at any point? Like, wait a second. Are we a music company? Especially because you wanted to be in music anyway. Like, wait a second. Are we better at throwing festivals than we are?
0: We, there's definitely, it definitely did. We did have an identity crisis for a little bit. You know, we ran the festival for seven years. And it grew. It grew into a two day, 25,000. There's posters. 000. I remember the posters. Yeah, well, I, I can mean, show you the posters here. I mean, it's we kind had of some one of, amazing, like a Coachella poster. Yeah, we had amazing acts like, you know, from the weekend, Avicii, Lana Del Rey, just unbelievable talent coming to play these festivals. And for a moment, you started to think was Sweet Green a, primarily a food and restaurant company, or was it more of this? At one point, it's funny, I was looking at an old letter. We thought like, can this be like a virgin type brand that kind of goes into other sort of experiences? And was our secret sauce just creating experiences versus restaurants? I'm glad we pivoted back to restaurants. I think the learning for me is growing from the core and focus is everything. Even when we were, you know, I remember thinking we had, oh, 20 stores and we have this festival, like we can be this lifestyle brand. And it was Fun and ambitious, but in retrospect, you know, people ask me today, what's next for Sweetgreen? Like, are you gonna go into other food categories? And are you gonna launch this? And then I'm like, what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna open a thousand restaurants yeah. that are incredibly profitable. I'm gonna own my category. And once I do that, I can do anything. Yeah. But if you look at the people that have expanded beyond their category, they first own their category. They have total market leadership. And then you can go into that next thing. And, you know, the best examples, if you look in like the shoe world, you have a lot of companies that are just running shoes and they're never, the running shoe company can't go sell you basketball shoes or other shoes, but Nike won their category and now they can go into any single category they want. You know, they won running, they won basketball, and now they can sell you tennis, skateboarding, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So the lesson for us is before being so eager to jump to the adjacent category, let's totally win our category while creating a brand that gives us still the license to do other things and if you do that that that's how you can expand and again maybe you know looking at the big you know someone like Amazon perfect example one books before they did everything before they became the everything store
1: do you ever think like maybe there's more of that allure in a gross margin business that is not as Sexy in the sense that, like, in Google's business, like, 90% margins, it's working. Why the hell would you go anywhere else? Like, it's here. I think about WeWork, where it's like this business model is capital intensive. It's where the digital and physical world meet. It's tempting to go do other things that don't look and feel like the core business. That's not software that infinitely scales in the same way. I think it was really smart what you did. I don't know. I just thought about that now.
0: No, yeah, it's 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 super interesting. I mean, if you think about the examples with Google, are just crazy because Google is the greatest. Business ever created. Yeah. You know, it's just like they've created this one product that has a monopoly on the business with 90% margins yeah. and create, it's just a cash cow to do anything they want. There's really nobody else that has created anything to, to that scale. And if, you know, when, when we've studied other businesses, the ones that have truly won have won their category first especially if your category is big. It's one thing if you're you're, you're playing in a small sphere and you got to expand your category, but food is massive. You know, food in the US is, you know, trillion and a half dollars. We think that what we can offer from a food perspective is so much broader than even like a Chipotle for example. But Chipotle has 3,000 stores is about a 50 billion market cap company. So while I want to go into so, do so much more, let's first just own the US in what we do and be the best in the world at it, and it will give us the license to do anything else we want.
1: Yeah, I mean, you talked about Starbucks, and I know it's a company that you admire. Their market, their TAM is so big that they've basically only done coffee, pretty much yeah. forever. They've never really done food in a meaningful way. You know, like they've just done coffee.
0: It's an unbelievable. It's I mean, unbelievable. Maybe someone told you, you know, 40 years ago that there's gonna be 30,000 of these across the world of selling what is really a commodity product, right? If you think about it, you know, it's like something that you can make at home and pretty easily at home. And they have 30,000 of these and it's a $100 billion plus market cap company that has kind of transformed retail. It's pretty incredible. The power of that just focus.
1: In these commodity type businesses, let's put salads in the mix of this, you know, salads and coffee and whatever. Is brand the only enduring thing that you have? For example, when I go to a city and I'm traveling a lot, right? I will literally search Starbucks on Google Maps. I search sweetgreen. Like, I don't look for salad. I look for sweetgreen. And that's because somewhere in my brain, it's been incepted in me that like, this is what I want from this place because of this brand. I'm gonna know what I'm getting from this place and it's gonna be awesome. You have to be able to be very intentional about evoking that
0: feeling in me. So I think brand is, you know, a lot of people in like the past 10 years are like, oh, sweet green or a restaurant company or a technology company. Like you remember this conversation yeah. very, you know, the, the media love to try to put this technology company. Spin. And they wanted to
1: bait you into being they like, want, oh,
0: we're a technology company. At our heart, we are a brand. But in terms of what makes a brand in our world scalable, it's something that it's, you know, I used to complain a lot about, you know, in the, in the early days, I used to say, oh man, our business is so hard. We have to be good at so many things. We have to be good at brand. We have to be good at operations, supply chain, real estate, design, construction, technology, like the number of capabilities and like almost many things that we have to be best in the world at in order to bring the sweet experience to life, is kind of astonishing, right? We source the food locally. We make it from scratch every day. We have 6,000 team members that do this. We've built a lot of the technology stack that powers this. We have five channels that deliver it, on and on in terms of what we have to do. But all of those things in terms of how hard it was to build that I used to complain about is actually what I am so happy about today. The execution of the moat is really something that sets it apart. Another way of saying, if you look around the country, you'll see a lot of places that can do what Sweetgreen does in some respect with one restaurant, maybe two or three restaurants. Maybe you can do it in one city, but it's really hard just from a pure execution perspective to do it across the country and to do it at scale. And I think that's the other piece is, is, if you look at like a Chipotle, there's a lot of great burrito places, but can they execute with that consistency and quality and do it? at that scale. It's brand and execution. And when you talk about execution, it really comes down to people. You know, people don't realize that, you know, a restaurant company is so people-driven. The people are so much of the product and experience. The food, while it's challenging sourcing locally the way we do, what makes what we do so challenging is we have so many ingredients that are made from scratch in every store every single day by human beings. And Building a system and then a culture and training in order to do that in a consistent way is what makes what we do very hard. And on the people side, you've taken different attempts at solving for this. Don't you call the basically GMs of restaurants head coaches? Correct. Yeah. Why do you do that? We call them a head coach because we believe their primary job is leading and developing talent. So we we find that, you know- In store. In store. So so much of the success of Sweetgreen we find is having great head coach stability, a head coach that's there, having a team that's stable. And then we find that the best head coaches are ones that have been grown from within. So our goal is to have as many of our future leaders Start as team members and work their way up, and we love that because it's a win-win-win. It's great for them; it's a pathway to the middle class. Our head coaches make over a hundred thousand dollars a year. I mean, it's an amazing job, and you can get there for, as from a team member within three years. You can start working and don't need a college education. Can come. It's a hard job. It's. you don't from, you get equity? You get equity in the company great benefits. And we think it's an amazing opportunity. But the reason we call them a coach is because we think their primary job is not just operating a restaurant, but really coaching the team to develop future leaders.
1: Yeah. I do think going back to our earlier conversation on like, how do you get people into an office? How do you get people giving a shit about the company more? Equity is a pretty good way of solving for that, where you become more of a missionary because your financial incentives are tied to that rather than your hourly pay. Yeah,
0: it's been, it's something that we've used a lot as we've grown the company. All of our head coaches get equity Are even when, right before we went public, we did something called the gratitude grant where we gave every single team member at the company smart, some equity. And we just wanted to say, Hey, this is a big milestone for the company, but we want everyone to take part in this and be an owner in this. And for me, one of our core values is win, win, win. And the idea is, you know, kind of a version of conscious capitalism where the customer wins, the team member wins and the company wins all together. And really, I I think there's a fourth win is the community wins. And for me, so much of my personal purpose is not just how I want to help change the food system and and be part of that change with Sweetgreen and create this great company, but also believe that capitalism can be a force for good. And part of this idea of the gratitude grant wasn't just the financial incentive we were giving these people, but also a lesson in capitalism in that owning something not just getting paid for your time. And so a lot of the things that what we did when we did it wasn't just like, here's the shares. We wanted to explain how, you know, for a lot of people who've never owned equity in anything, first time actually owning something. And I think if we want to change capitalism, we have to make more people owners of equity so they too can take part in what's amazing about capitalism, which things can grow without you having to actually put your time towards them. I wish more of this country would focus on that so that because I do believe that capitalism, how we're going to solve the biggest problems in the world, I do not think it's going to happen through a big government. I think it's really going to be through private enterprise and innovation, really the way America America we have today was made.
1: I totally agree. One of the other things that you do in that similar vein is that you give your employees free meals. My first job was at Subway, first ever job. I was a sandwich artisan, most humbling job I've ever had in my entire life. And I had to pay for a sandwich i think the reason that you said you do the free meal is because you want people to become habituated to eating this way you want them to resonate with the product that they're selling and in doing so it can be more effective employees serving customers is that right
0: 100 percent. i mean so much of what we're doing we have this belief of building culture and building the brand inside out so the first people that we have to get you know, ingratiated into our culture and our mission is our team members. If they don't believe it and they're not drinking the Kool-Aid or eating the salad, our customers won't be. A lot of these people that come to us actually don't eat this way before. You know, they weren't you know, used to eating this sort of healthy food. So it's very important to us to not just give them a job, but teach them about the importance of food. And there's, there's a real gap in this country about understanding the power of food and its effect on our health as well as the environment. And so what's amazing is the stories I love are team members that come to us and just because of their daily shift meal, they start eating this food and they completely transform their health and their health dreams. And it's funny. We started tracking it because we can see with their uniforms when they uh, what size shirts they get. No way. So we can see that like a lot of people like will start with one size shirt and over time have a different size uniform. And I mean, it's amazing. It's not just about losing weight, but just about feeling better. And I think it's really important to like, not only teach them because they take that home to their families and you're now taking, you know, having people who just don't have access or understanding of this way of eating and giving them a tool that can really improve their
1: life. I reference this book a lot on this show, but it's by Bill Walsh, the old Niners coach. It's called score takes care of itself. And it was, he took over the 49ers when they were pretty much the worst professional franchise that anyone's ever seen and, um, turned them into the Niners. One of the things that he did when he first started was he would teach the receptionist how to answer the phone. And then he went into the locker room, and the first thing that he did was he taught the players how to tie their shoes. And the whole lesson of the book is that the details matter, mm-hmm. and you've got to build from the inside out, from the ground up. It kind of reminds me of that. Yeah,
0: yeah. there's a famous story about uh, John Wooden. Yeah, UCLA coach? UCLA coach. Same thing. When he started coaching, they spent the first few days just tying their shoes and he's like if you don't get that right nut you don't get anything right and i do believe i've been talking recently a lot about this at sweetgreen is the fundamentals matter more than anything especially in our business when it's a, you want to get your meal right with the right hospitality and the right service and it's the little things that you get right the little disciplines and the fundamentals that make the magic happen totally agree one more kind of analog to this is
1: in the tech world and at twilio when you start, whether you're a lawyer, you're an assistant, you're a sales rep, you're in marketing, doesn't matter. The first thing that you do is build an app in Twilio and you can't actually start your job in earnest until you build an app in Twilio. And it's just representative of like, how can you do our job without really understanding our product and how we're solving problems for people? It's
0: really cool. We make all of our team members that work at our support center, which is like our corporate team, spend time in the restaurant. So when you join, you spend a few days working in the restaurant in the shoes of the team member, and then I really encourage, I mean, now that COVID's over, we have a program called Behind the Greens, where a few times a year we ask everyone to go in and, again, work the restaurant, really understand yep. it from them. And I always say my team is kind of maybe sick of hearing this, but all the answers are in the field. Do you ever go out there? Of course. I spend about 20, 25% of my time in the field. So In the field. You were like wear a wig and a mustache or something? No, no. I, I mean, I, I, I do a mix of some surprise visits where I just go check on stores. Yeah. But I spend a lot of time going to each market, spending time with store leaders, understanding where we're going yeah. from a development perspective, but also just checking my work. You build things here in the office, whether it's new menu items or new tools for your team members or all these things. But until you see that in real life, it's the answer is not in a deck. I just want, like, for for people to understand that decks are a great way to communicate certain things, but the actual, like, end product experience, if you're in a physical world business, you got to be there shoulder to shoulder with your teams and feel it. One of the things that I struggle with, I'm wondering if you do,
1: is, like, I'm an overachiever. You strike me as an overachiever as well. And I like things done very well my way with my bar, which is a pretty high-quality bar. And sometimes I find myself getting very unfairly frustrated When I have maybe years of context, having done something for pretty much ever, and then I immediately—someone could be three months in—I might not even know it—and I immediately hold them to that same bar that I now hold myself to after years and thousands of countless hours of practice on some certain thing. Do you ever experience that?
0: Yeah, I think uh, you know early on in my like walking into a restaurant, yeah, yeah, of course. I think very early on in my leadership journey was—I think all leaders have this. Challenge of you could feel like you can do most things better, but in order to scale, you have to let go. And so it's, it's always that balance. And it's, you know, you still, even at this scale, you have it. Sometimes you just want to like grab the wheel, but is it sustainable to do that versus letting other people do it and fail and learn and get there? And so It's just this, I mean, it's such a balance of leadership of like you want the right answer and you know you could get there, but you know that in order to do this at scale and to grow talent, you have to empower them and make it their idea and make them own it and own their mistake.
1: You were co-CEOs with your two founders until when? It's been now five years. Five years. So let's call it 2018, 2017 was when you became CEO. Correct.
0: And we introduced a strategic shift in the company really with a greater focus on shifting the model by integrating more technology and rejecting the status quo of where the restaurant industry was going in order to build the restaurant company of the future. And I think it was taking on a lot more risk at the time. We were profitable at the time, you know, probably could have gone public years earlier and kind of been a another restaurant company. But for me, it, it's always been about building something for the long term. We want to build the McDonald's of our generation. We want to build you know, something really, really big. And so time horizon has never been a huge worry for me. If I have to push out success years and invest more to get there, I'm totally fine to do that. And in 2017, 18, we saw the changing world, which COVID just accelerated. Things like mobile ordering and delivery, And the importance of technology in the experience we saw is hugely important. And we, you know, the three of us, the three, myself, Nicholas, and Daniel wanted to take that bet. And I think a lot of the leadership team we had did not have the risk tolerance that we did around going on that journey.
1: The wanting to be the McDonald's of our generation. Can I explore that a
0: little bit more? Sure. Do you think McDonald's is a burger company? McDonald's is a brand. I mean, they're, they've defined fast food. And so when I say, you know, McDonald's is a generation, what I mean is they've, at the time, it was hugely innovative, right? Creating a trusted, safe, is maybe the word to say, <laughs> safe place to eat that is consistent and accessible and affordable and incredibly convenient across the world with an iconic brand is pretty amazing, And so we want to do what they've done in terms of scale, accessibility, convenience, and build this brand that is truly ingrained in in culture. You know, if you think about America, you think like McDonald's. How can we have something that actually is good for you and good for the environment, but still has all of those other attributes?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the good news for you is that when someone eats a salad, they want to feel that way. You kind of have a little bit of regret when you go to McDonald's.
0: Doesn't McDonald's own the real estate for pretty much all of their... Stores. So McDonald's owns a lot of their real estate, and they are a franchise business. So the business models are very different. Yeah. In, in what like we Like Sometimes do. I think, like, are they a real estate business? Yeah. In a lot. In a lot of ways, they are. Right. It's, I mean, it's an incredible company. Incredible.
1: Okay. So things start rolling again. COVID happens. You kind of have to maybe refocus your energy on your core competencies was that kind of a good thing for the business for you? Kind of like, okay, like we want to try this thing and then we want to try this thing. And every time it seems like you try different things, it does reinforce your brand, which I think is really good. However, I always think it seems like to me a good reminder that your core business is your core business. Is that fair?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, listen, tough times make you stronger. I like to surf a lot and you know start talking to a few people about how much how your worst surf days often are the surf days that make you the best. It's the days you get caught behind some big sets and really have to paddle through and really build that strength and you know just get your ass kicked. Getting your ass kicked is good for you. It's painful, but it's good for you and it forces you to get really disciplined and really really sharp. For us, COVID was that. I mean, COVID was our business was off 80% at the beginning of COVID. I mean, we're still not nearly recovered to where we would because have Because
1: offices haven't gone back to work. I
0: mean, at first it was all shut down. Right. Right. And then, yeah, offices, you know, most of our business at the, you know, at the onset of COVID, we had a channel called Outpost, which is 100% office driven. Yeah. And then most of our footprint go, you know, when we started the company- It near your office was, was buildings. was near office buildings. Yeah. Intentionally, we wanted to build our brand in these big cities. Right. And the national transition was always to go into the suburbs, which we've now done. But at the time, the timing in which COVID hit us, most of our stores and our great stores were near offices, which just went completely empty. So it really forced us to get very sharp in a few ways. One, just from an operational discipline perspective. It allowed us to spend some time really investing in the operation. And we were growing so fast. There was things that we didn't take the time to do, investing in certain tools and training and just things to make sure we can operate at scale. We almost got this air cover to do it. The second is financial discipline. You know, what a lot of the financial discipline that I see other startups having to take in the past six months, you know, we had we got we had to take that medicine right at the beginning totally. of COVID. We'd raised a lot of capital. We were spending quite honestly pretty f- really on innovation and things and it forced us to really think ROI, like prioritize and think about the ROI of everything we were doing and get that financial discipline both in terms of our GNA investments but also our capital investments in terms of where we go the third is it really made us think about where we want to go from a sweet green experience perspective and how do we make sure that things work in this new world whether it be the importance of automation importance of new formats like a drive-through model and how we can expand the menu to bring in a broader customer base. And so I think we are eventually going to look back at COVID and the pandemic is something that made us stronger. Having said that, it's been incredibly challenging. It's been almost, you know, coming up on three years and our business is heavily impacted by it. It still is today. That's crazy. Going back to your surf analogy, I have heard that your team
1: can tell when you show up to the office and if you've surfed or gotten a workout... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> or not. I say that because, like, even this morning, I had a choice. I could do an hour more of prep, and I'm addicted to prep. There's never enough prep, you know? Or I could have done a workout this morning, and I was like, just do the workout. Do the workout this morning because you're going to be way more present and you're just going to be more effective. Yeah. I don't know.
0: That's how I kind of thought about it. With- always. Oh, I mean, I just think that, you know, again, back to the balance, like physical, mental, spiritual, yeah. and then it all leads into your performance. And so, one of the ways I think I've become more effective is just how committed I've been to physical health and mental health, whether it be meditation, surfing, working out, just think that it just makes you better at what you do and more energized and more productive. So I wish I could surf every day. It's hard to do these days, but I I like to get a workout
1: in at least. One of the things that I have seen pretty much every time with founders that crave control, which is, by the way, pretty much every founder, is that it's very hard to let go. And you're now a 5,000 person company, which really means you can't do most things, it's probably one to three things that you can do. How hard going through evolutions of scale was it for you to let go of the previous thing that you wanted to
0: control? I did something I think I thought about from the very early days. Like you I was very, always, conscious, I was very conscious very yeah. early. I just remember, I remember when we had a, just a couple of restaurants and we were running them, but I was always really conscious that I'm happy to do this because I want to learn how to do it. But I want to make sure I build a system where it's not dependent on me. And I think I had a lot of fears of of looking around, you know, I remember at the time knowing people that had great businesses that they got trapped by. right? They had a great you know restaurant or something, but like they became slaves to that thing and were not able to scale because they built it only to work around them. So I think we were very intentional from that very, very early stage that we were going to work the restaurants because it was the right thing to do for us to learn it, to then build the system, but we weren't going to make it dependent on us. And so I've always been conscious of it and continue to challenge myself on what things I can let go of and empower other people to do. And it's it's funny, you know, sometimes my family will be like, so what was the rent or the this on the this deal? I'm like, I don't know. I'm like, I don't know. I trust my team who runs that part of the thing that like it made sense what I track is the return on capital of that project but I have to trust my team to make those decisions
1: they're like Jonathan June I was in the sweet green in Beverly
0: Hills and the goat cheese was a little bit light today what was going on we're opening uh, sweet green in Beverly Hills next week and you know it's gonna be store number 173 or 174 wow. we wanted to oh, it was it, we thought about opening store number two Three in Beverly Hills. I'm glad we did not, but I, I've been telling my team recently, you're gonna have a lot of eyeballs on this restaurant because so, your family's so, all Beverly so, Hills. so I've been going, I've been going there a lot, talking to the team, making sure everyone's ready for the hundreds of family members that That's are. That's got to be, be there. cool, though. It's your homecoming. Yeah, it's a, it's a bit of a homecoming. That's exi- gonna be awesome. We're, we're, ex- we're excited. For I have it.
1: one more question for you, and then I got to let you go. But you have identified your customer, and you, the word that you used to describe the customer. I thought was fascinating, conscious achiever. Mm -hmm. First of all, what does that mean? And second of all, when you can so clearly articulate what your customer is, how does that impact the downstream decisions for the business?
0: Does the question make sense? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think one of the things we did very early on was spending a lot of time understanding the customer as well as the brand architecture and what the brand stood for. So it was very intentional, probably in like year two or year three, putting out what is the mission of the company? What are the pillars and brand values and core values we want to have? And how does that design around this customer, this aspirational customer that we have? Interestingly, you know, I I love businesses that start with like a niche customer. I think some people are like, like, oh, that's a limited market. It's actually great Mm -hmm. because you know who you're selling to and you can grow from that niche into something much bigger. We're in this interesting stage now where we've kind of captured so much of that Conscious Achiever, the customer that you'd expect to be that obvious sweet green consumer, someone who cares more about their health. We found the Conscious Achiever loves to travel. They love to learn new things. They love to try new things. But today we're actually trying to go from the, it's it's an interesting moment where we're trying to go from that core customer to a bit of a broader customer while still maintaining the core customer. It's this really interesting like Evolution in the brand where we're starting to open in parts, you know, not just places like LA and San Francisco and New York, but, you know, we opened in Detroit two weeks ago. We're opening in Minneapolis and we're opening in Indianapolis. It's like the Midwest. We're opening in the Midwest. We're opening, we're, Our we, values you know, are very different. We're opening, we're now in Texas, we're in Georgia, we're going to these other places. How do we find the shared values for those customers, which is around healthy food that is, you know, still affordable and convenient and, fulfilling and you know the hot things that people are that are almost like broadly loved around hospitality and experience that aren't just so just for the conscious achiever but at the same time not losing that customer so it's this, it's this delicate balance
1: it's the next evolution yeah. fascinating well dude i appreciate you this has been fun i wrap all these things the same way the first is are you hiring if you are hiring are there any specific roles where if
0: someone's listening go ahead yeah, we're, we're always hiring. We're hiring both at the support center here in Los Angeles. But the roles that we're really hiring most for are head coach roles. And I, I talked about it a little bit earlier. But, you know, head coach is really like kind of like the jumping off point for a career here. And as you know, we're opening almost a restaurant a week and we're looking for great head coaches to join us. And, you know,
1: I want to be a head coach. <laughs> that sounds awesome. Um,
0: all right. Last one. When you hear the word grit, what do you think of? You know, when I hear the word grid, the thing that I think about is, have you ever heard of the Stockdale Paradox? No. Prisoner of War, John Stockdale, uh, he gets captured and they coined it because what he said is they're all in war and he's like, the people that did not make it are the people who thought we would get out by Christmas because they would die of heartbreak. The other people that didn't make it are the people that thought we would never get out at all. So they would just die of desperation. The people that made it were the people that, had absolute conviction that they were going to make it out, but they didn't know exactly when it was going to happen. So for me, grit comes from this ability to change your frame on time and play it for the long game. Know that there will be a lot of ups and downs in that, a really messy middle in order to get there, but that you will get there over time. And I think that's what creates grit. Great answer. Thank you. Dude, thank you. Thanks, man. This was was fun. Great great to be together. Yeah, I loved it.
1: That's it. Thanks for listening. If you're just discovering the podcast, we have a lot more episodes from organizations like Snowflake, Twilio, Slack, LinkedIn, Box, etc. If you want to keep up or support the show, the best way to do so is by following us on Spotify, subscribing on Apple, and leaving a review. Also, we love feedback. So feel free to email us, grit at kleinerperkins.com.